0: I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending December 20th. This week's episode is brought to you by Arrow and IBM. In this week's episode, we talk with author George Leopold, who's just given us his list of the five best documentaries about space. And this year, we're doing something different for our annual year in review. EE Times editors are sharing our favorite interviews from 2019. Also, we'll get a status report on quantum computing. I was just at the IEDN conference which was buzzing about advances in quantum computing. It's a technology that we should probably stop thinking of as esoteric. Here is Maud Vinay, one of the world's top quantum computing researchers to explain why.
1: You understand that there is a race because of the disruption that quantum computing can bring to right. the high-performance computing market. The high-performance computing market is a big market, with 32 billion in 2017, and the growth rate is expected to be high. But we, so far, the semiconductor industry, we fail to seize say, say the opportunities, to grasp okay. the opportunities. Uh, because we don't have the technological solutions. So we're frustrated.
0: We'll get back to IEDM in a moment. George Leopold is a self-proclaimed space weenie. He's the author of a respected biography of Gus Grissom, one of the country's original astronauts. A few weeks back, we had George on, discussing his choice for the five best motion pictures about space ever. We just published his list of the five best space documentaries. The feature films George picked for his original list included 2001 A Space Odyssey, Apollo 13, The Martian, First Man, and The Right Stuff. And his choices were not without controversy. We had some readers take us to task for picking films that were not 100% accurate. Now, that prompted me to ask George about his criteria for a good space movie and whether absolute fidelity to the known facts is a reasonable criterion in a film that is not explicitly a documentary. Okay, George, so your list has a couple of uh, nominally nonfiction items on it, Uh, a couple that are complete fiction. Uh, What are the criteria for a great space movie in in your estimation?
2: Okay, well I what I wanted to focus on was human space exploration. Okay. So, so and I thought that certainly 2001 fit the bill even though it was fictional and of course it's got this great uh, thread with HAL which is highly relevant for today. Yeah. And yeah, just uh, just amazing special effects for the 1960s. And it was all done mechanically or with tricky camera shots and all of this stuff and there are only one or two or three mistakes that Kubrick made in making the film he couldn't get the dust to drop immediately because there was gravity in the stage obviously but so that was one thing uh, we got first man the 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 Neil Armstrong, it's not biopic. Uh, James Hansen, the author, said it's not a biopic. It's it's about space exploration. But I think yeah. it really is it really is a biopic, and we can talk more about that. Um, yeah, though The Martian's obviously out there. A bit. But but yes, yeah, I mean some readers said, why didn't you go with uh, what about Star Wars and all that stuff? Well, that didn't quite fit the bill in terms of human space exploration for me, as far as I can tell. S- Star Wars is one series of battles after another, right?
0: Yeah, there's there's a kiss or two in there, but yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: right. <laughs> it was on yesterday, I think.
0: <laughs> and, a, and a couple of, and a couple of uh, fluffy, uh, cute things. So the exploration angle is, uh, okay, that makes it a little more clearer why some of the things are on your list. Now, a couple of people were quibbling about uh, some of the details in these movies i mean you know the uh, nominally first man is a biopic um, but you know it added a few things
2: yeah uh, uh, yeah josh singer the the screenwriter yeah took some liberties with this this little known aspect of armstrong's life about the loss of his daughter karen mm. uh, in 1962 the effect that it had on him and they extend that in the movie to a scene at the end of the man's first spacewalk in which Neil Armstrong uh, does something related to his daughter's death. Just in case Mm. no one hasn't seen the movie, I won't give it away. But it's highly speculative and uh, probably the reason Neil Armstrong went over to this crater was to get some bedrock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not to do what the film says, but uh, Jim Hansen, the author of First Man, and Josh Singer, the screenwriter, defend this 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 ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is that it isn't clear that they really got Neil Armstrong, who Neil Armstrong was. I mean, you know, in a biography, you're telling a man's, you know, what was this person really like? As much as I li- admire Ryan Gosling, I don't know that they quite got it. I don't think he was quite the automaton that the film makes out, but there are some great engineering scenes. There's the scene where Armstrong's conducting the world's first space docking and they fire their thrusters and turn out the lights in the cabin and they got nothing. Uh So Armstrong just pulls out his kneeboard and he starts doing the numbers by hand. And he just tells Houston, here's what we're going to do. They fire the thrusters, they turn out the lights and by God, there's the Agena. Nice scene. Very nice scene.
0: Now, you've uh, written about Gus Grissom. You've met a bunch of the astronauts. Had you ever met Armstrong yourself? Not met him, but heard him speak uh, at least three times.
2: He, you know, uh, there, there was this misunderstood image of him as being a recluse. You know, when somebody like the IEEE asked him to speak, and in the first instance it was the 100 greatest inventions of the 20th century, he, he agreed to do it. I mean, they brought him in the back door. They took him out the back door because mm-hmm. he knew he'd be, you know, swamped with autograph seekers. But he gave the speech. Right. And uh, there were two great lines from that speech that someone asked him, What was the worst invention of the 20th century? And he said, The credit card. <laughs> <laughs> and, a, and a child in the audience asked the question everybody wanted to ask him, which was, Do you ever dream about walking on the moon? And Armstrong said, to my great disappointment, I never have. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I heard him speak a couple of times, and he always, always talked about how he was just part of this continuum. That without all of these engineers, all these technicians, he and his and, and Collins and Aldrin wouldn't have gotten to the moon and back.
0: Yeah. Uh, I got the sense of him never having met him, gracious, humble, and just private
2: yeah he did just he didn't want to talk about himself. He yeah.
0: loved to talk about being a test
2: pilot. That was what he considered himself. yeah, he didn't want to talk about himself and this burden he had to carry through life, you know, he did it with with uh, with grace and dignity mm. and tried to maintain some privacy. so
0: yeah, well, back to the movies. I mean, like a movie like that, a movie like the right stuff, they're films, they're entertainment. you try to convey as a as a filmmaker as much. Uh, truth as you can in a visual shorthand is is it problematic do you think uh, to the enjoyment of of a major motion picture if the filmmakers fudge details do a composite character or whatever yeah I think I think it happens a lot and
2: you know there's just so much material that has to be synthesized into well if it's a feature film maybe two and a half hours of stuff to do you know, I point out in, in the right stuff a film I have some serious qualms about. There is this <laughs> there is this nice scene that sort of encapsulates what is the right stuff, and this guy Alan Shepard just lands his his aircraft on a carrier at night. And I think they concocted this scene, but it's effective. They the these NASA recruiters approach him and say, you know, we we're interested in interviewing you for this job, you know, there are rockets blowing up every week at the Cape, you know, somebody who could get killed. And Shepard says, sounds dangerous. Count me in. (laughs) That's the right stuff. Right. Or, and as one of the, the, the Apollo astronauts who walked on the moon said when, you know, when they told Neil Armstrong, you got 30 seconds of gas left. Well, he wasn't about to abort having come that far because that wouldn't be the right stuff.
0: Of mm. course, he was going to land. Interesting. So that kind of brings up another question. Now, there's some difference between a major motion picture and a a documentary. Yeah,
2: yeah. And this this particular subject lended itself to uh, quite a few documentaries, and we picked the, be- the the what I think are the five best ones. Part of the reason is he got. All you know, over fifty years of historic footage, you know NASA recorded everything, and this stuff was used in many of these documentaries. In my favorite one, they put it to music. This great, uh, you know, uh, super slow motion shot, super high speed engineering footage uh-huh. of, a, of a Saturn V liftoff. Oh, neat. And, you know, I, I, the, the composer said, I couldn't believe I got to score this. And the way he does it is <laughs> is really exquisite. So you've got all of this material. And then, uh, you know, film like The Right Stuff actually sort of rekindled interest in the moon landings. Nobody really cared much about it until Tom Wolfe's book came out in 1978 mm. or nine, And, and th- then the subsequent film. And then these documentaries were made and the, the 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 documentary makers went back and talked to the astronauts, who many had, you know, sort of gone back into industry and so forth. Mm. And it generated a lot of great stories about just how this was pulled off. And and one of them, they had this really difficult problem of about weight, which is always the problem with rockets. And mm. uh, they. They had the design locked in, so they had to take the weight out of the second stage of the the Apollo Saturn V, and they figured out a way to do it. And there's this great quote from one of the engineers at, uh, I think North American Aviation said, "Well, you know, engineers can do just about anything." So they did it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. That's excellent. Yeah.
2: So these old timers had just these great stories to tell. Some of them said they actually felt it was like when they saw the rocket go up, it was like losing a child. Wow. They were so attached to it. They had put so much of their heart into it that they actually felt bad when it left the Earth.
0: Wow. Well, you've named your car, right? I mean, why not? Yeah. Uh, why not name it a rocket, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they did, and they did. Yeah, right.
0: Uh, so, are there any upcoming movies that haven't been released yet? Whether uh, you know that uh, that you're looking forward to?
2: Brad Pitt and Ad Astra. Ad, Ad Astra is a reference to the term. It's a it's a difficult road to the stars. So I didn't see that, uh, but I hear it's pretty good. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is that there is going to be a remake of The Right Stuff. Oh! And Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio's production company, Appian Way, is, is doing it. It's going to debut on the National Geographic Channel. I believe it opened debuts in February. And uh, I've been speaking with a cast member who's going to play Gus Grissom. And he says they're going to get it right this time. So uh, I look forward to seeing that. They're also going to include the the Mercury 13, the women who actually qualified for space flight in the early 60s, but of course never got a flight. So it's going to be a very interesting revisionist history of the early space program, a remake of the right stuff.
0: Uh, perhaps perhaps a, 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 a correction more than a revision perhaps, right? Exactly. In the case of Gus Grissom, certainly, right. And this is not going to – can I intuit that this is not going to be like a a distinct feature film? It might be a series? It's a series that they've they've shot the first
2: season, and depending on the response, uh, it could go all the way through Apollo.
0: Oh, cool. All right, George. Thank you so much for being here again. Okay, great to be with you, and happy
2: holidays, Brian.
0: So George and I got so enthusiastic about this, that, and the other thing that we forgot to actually mention his picks for Best Documentary. They are In the Shadow of the Moon. And be careful, there are two films by that name. One's fiction, the other is the documentary. Also, Apollo 11, For All Mankind, First to the Moon, and Moon Machines. We're going to take a moment here to thank our sponsors, IBM and Aero. Together, they are bringing you the IBM and Aero Smart Airport Asset Management Solution, designed to create a better future of travel. It's built on the IBM Watson Internet of Things platform. It runs the IBM Maximo Enterprise Asset Management software and is supported with Aero-designed and sourced components. The International Electron Devices Meeting is better known among the technoscenti as IEDM. Technoscenti. That's sort of like the word cognoscenti, only for techies, right? I just made that up, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to keep using it all the time from now on. Anyway, IEDM is where some of the most complex, fundamental research in the electronics industry is presented every year. This year, for example, one of the papers was called The first demonstration of wafer-scale heterogeneous integration of gallium oxide MOSFETs on silicon carbide and silicon substrates using an ion-cutting process. It was close to standing room only for that one. I'm serious. While I was there, I interviewed Maude Vinay. She's got over 40 patents, mostly associated with nanotechnology. But in recent years, she's become one of the world's leading researchers exploring quantum computing. She was recently named the project lead of the quantum computing program at the French Research Institute known as CEA leti As with almost every discipline within the electronics industry, quantum computing has its own terminology. Quantum computers rely on qubits, quantum bits. A qubit could be virtually any quantum. For example, it could be an electron or a photon. All quantum computing researchers, regardless of what type of quantum computer they're trying to build, all of them are all still trying to improve the quality of their qubits. There are different types of quantum computers based on different kinds of qubits. In the interview we're about to play for you, you'll hear about quantum annealing. Annealing is a physical approach that maps to a specific algorithmic approach. Companies with annealers include IBM and D-Wave. A quantum annealer might rely on 50 to 100 qubits. A quantum computer based on a silicon chip can instantiate hundreds of thousands to millions of qubits on a chip. On the principle that more is better, you'd think a system with millions of qubits is more powerful than an annealer with only dozens, but that's simply not so. I asked Vinay to go over the types of quantum computers.
1: There are four major systems which have been demonstrated all the qubit operations: superconducting qubits, silicon spin qubits, ion traps, and photons.
0: Does it make a difference what types of applications you are are trying to to solve, and what kind of qubits you try to make?
1: No, actually, this is very good question. Oh. Um, Depending on the problem that you're trying to solve, you might or might not need an individual control of your cubits. Let's take an optimization problem, which uh, can be mapped onto an annealer, this optimization problem does not need an individual control of the qubits. Basically, you take a quantum system and let it relax to its ground state, and you observe. And that's how you get the, the answers. An optimization problem is of, uh, looking for the a, a minimum of a function. Okay. So what people have done, they have invented the annealing. Basically, they add, from a numerical perspective, some thermal agitation to your variable. So you're looking for the minimum of the function as a function of x. You had some x plus delta x. You shake your x and then cool it down fast Mm -hmm. and you're going to land in a minimum. So that's called the annealing techniques. This is very usual numerical technique to solve optimization problems. What is good with quantum annealing is that you can have the tunnel effect. And with annealing, you can fall into a local minimum. Okay. With quantum annealing, because of tunnel effect, you actually reach the real minimum of your function. And this is why people are so excited about quantum annealers, because they think that they can find optimization solutions that they wouldn't find otherwise. And when you do that, so it goes back to your question, how does it relate to the hardware and the design of the hardware? To do that, you just need to program your original function, let it relax and measure the ground state. So you don't need an individual control of your qubits. That's the reason why and that's the market that uh, the wave is first addressing. It doesn't require a high level of control of your qubits. You don't need very good qubits because you just let it relax. You don't have to keep them alive. You don't have to keep the quantum information alive for thousands of operations because it's just the one and relax.
0: So, you're working with silicon?
1: Yeah. Okay. You understand that there is a race because of the disruption that quantum computing can bring to the high-performance computing market. The high-performance computing market is a big market, with 32 billion in 2017, and the growth rate is expected to be high, but so far, the semiconductor industry we fail to say, say the opportunities to grasp the opportunities uh, because we don't have the technological solutions. So we're frustrated. It's good for an industry to be frustrated because then you're open-minded. And that's where quantum computing appears as an opportunity because of the disruption it can bring and because of the opportunities it offers uh, to solve untractable problems and to provide you with some examples with the optimization problems you imagine that you can improve the salesman, you can solve the salesman problem. That's very, I mean... You see what I mean. There is a lot of applications. Um, We were talking about the analog quantum computer. And on an analog quantum computer, you can actually map out um, quantum systems. And when you think about quantum systems, there is one that you know very well. It's atoms and molecules. And you can map the chemical bounds, and then you can actually simulate the ground state of many uh, molecules and get an accurate result of what their ground state's gonna be. So if it has implication in pharmaceuticals and so on. And that's the reason why people are so interested. So you've got all these applications. And uh, uh, when you do that, so we're, we're in a race. So people, when people pick up a, a system that they are gonna work with, they choose it for two reasons. We're in a race. So you start with what you know well, and you check the potential and the extrapolation from a system perspective. And this is where we choose silicon, because we think that there is a huge semiconductor industry uh, already involved in computing. And if this industry can make it, there's going to be no chance for the rest of the systems and uh, what's really good about silicon as a qubit is that uh, in silicon what you do is that you manipulate the spin degree of freedom of an electron and this electron you trap it in a potential and this potential is designed by electrostatic gates and when i tell you this story you're like oh but looks like a transistor
0: That's about to say
1: it's a bad transistor. Basically, what we're trying to do is a bad transistor. It's a transistor with huge excess resistance. You plug huge excess resistance in your transistor, it's going to be very easy to do a potential well between your two resistance. And then in this potential well, you can actually trap an electron and come and manipulate its spin with a magnetic field. And this is a story of silicon spin qubits and then once you've been able to do that what matters a lot from a system perspective so i'm really talking about from a system perspective is the trade-off you are going to have between the time it takes to perform your operation so that's interaction with the environment and the time during which you preserve your quantum information so these two parameters which are called on one hand the coherence time And on the other hand, the speed of operations, they depend on the interaction with your environment. And you understand that there's going to be a trade-off. And we think silicon is really good for this trade-off.
0: At IEDM, there were several sessions devoted to quantum computing. While it is wonderful to be able to use common CMOS processing to build one type of quantum computer, you still need to cryogenically cool the resulting silicon chips, and that just plays hob with silicon MOSFETs, which simply don't scale at cryo-temperatures. There was a tutorial at IEDM and that. Among the papers presented was one from Intel about integrating control electronics. Maud group at CEA Letty gave a paper on reading out qubits in quantum processors. Now, remember what I said earlier about quantum computers being finicky? This is a step toward making the silicon type less so. Who knows? Within a few years, quantum research will be presented not at IEDM, which is all about fundamental research, and instead be found at conferences about supercomputing and data center electronics. It's pretty common for a news operation to do a urine review feature when December rolls around, but frankly, we are so done with 2019. So this year, we decided to do something a little different. We asked everyone on staff to recall their favorite interview from the last year. What we do here at EE Times is cover the electronics industry's new technologies and products. We report on acquisitions and bankruptcies and trade and regulations, trying our best to get the details while still providing the context, the big picture. But most of what we do is talk to people, engineers, business executives, government representatives, and average people who use technology. We appreciate that so many of you share your time with us to help us understand the whys and hows behind the technologies and the trends. The next voices you will hear will be E.E. E. Times reporters, Junko Yoshida, Nitin Dehad, and francoise Pelle, Sally Ward-Foxton, and Maurizio Emilio DiPaolo, along with the voices of some of the people they've interviewed. Sally Ward Foxton is based in London. A double E, she focuses on artificial intelligence for EE Times. Here she is identifying her favorite interview.
3: Looking back over the interviews I've done this year, my favorite, I think, was back in the spring when I interviewed Nigel Toon. He's the CEO of Graphcore, a British startup that makes AI accelerator chips, which at the time had unique status as a non-Chinese chip unicorn. Back then, Graphcore was seen as one of the first out of all the very many startups in this sector to have actually produced a working chip. So of course, I was very keen to learn more about it. One of the reasons that this was my favourite interview of the year was that I learned such a lot from the discussion. The more we spoke, the more I developed an understanding of neural network workloads, not just how diverse they are, but why it's important to understand their complex data paths if you're going to design a neural network processor. I also gained an appreciation for how vital it is to develop hardware not only for today's neural networks, but for the networks of tomorrow as well. Nigel Toon, of course, is a great person to interview. Like any experienced semiconductor CEO, you'd expect him to be good at pitching his company and explaining the technology. But he really took it a step further, really evangelizing the technology in a very compelling way. A good interviewee has strong opinions on the subject and isn't afraid to express them. And he didn't hold back when it came to directly but politely explaining why GPUs are the problem, not the solution to enabling AI innovation. Hopefully, we'll be seeing a lot more exciting things from Graphcore in 2020.
0: Here's a clip of Nigel Toon that we had in our podcast episode that first aired on November 15th.
2: I think somebody told me that there's 70 companies trying to build chips yeah. for, yes. for AI. But maybe this is the wrong, wrong approach. And i always describe it as the italian rule of driving the rear view mirror doesn't matter you don't need it all you need to do is drive very fast and be ahead of everybody else and 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 then what what is behind you doesn't matter right
3: so that's kind of our attitude
0: next up we have maurizio de Paolo emilio a physicist who lives on the eastern shore of italy Maurizio reports on power electronics for us. Hi there. I would like to tell you about my interview with
4: uh, Scott Jones. Uh, Scott uh, is a managing director at Maxim, uh, and uh, he has a lot of experience in the embedded security market. Uh, He's the right person to understand why embedded devices need security, in particular medical devices, but not only also, how to achieve uh, it in uh, an easy way with an easy technology. During the interview, Scott told me the latest innovations uh, of his team to meet the future uh, security challenges with uh, a new technology that he uh, introduced and is called the chip DNA technology. That has attracted my attention. Maxim Chip DNA Physical Unclonable Function Technology or PUF technology makes the devices immune to invasive attacks because the key doesn't exist in memory or any other digital state or memory. Uh, the technology is based on the natural uh, behavior of MOSFET, naturally, random analog characteristics of semiconductor devices to produce cryptography keys. When needed, Uh, The circuit can generate the key that is unique for each uh, device and which in standard disappears when uh, it is no longer in use. Uh, The technology is very easy. Uh, It's based essentially on the intrinsic and statistical nature of electrons. Electrons which are our beloved particles that make up the uh, the matter. So, that uh, would mean simplicity is always behind big theories. We don't reinvent the wheel, don't need a sophisticated mathematical algorithm to have a strong security. Just to take the advantages of the physics we already know, we studied during the university or high school. Uh, I really appreciated uh, the professionalism shown by Scott and the wall Maxim integrated team that allowed uh, me to write uh, a good report on a new and a specific topic uh, that was perhaps not very well considered. But with the advent of IoT or Internet of Things, security is a must. Security must be well considered for the uh, the future. The new project offered uh, by Maxim, the new technology, opens uh, a new embedded market to integrate easy security features in embedded design but also it has the advantage of eliminating the need for security high key management systems.
0: Over a long career, Nitin Dehad has worked what is, from our point of view, both sides of the electronics industry. He's been on the corporate side, and now he's working as a journalist. With his background, he brings a wealth of knowledge to his reporting. Here's Nitin from his base in London. In my role with EE Times, I get to conduct many,
5: many interviews with all kinds of people, uh, whether they're CEOs of companies or academics, investors, uh, or sometimes uh, even, you know, sort of government representatives. So I think one of the really interesting interviews for me this year in 2019 was with the Minister of Science and Technology in Taiwan, Liang Ji Chen. That really fascinated me because it's not often that you get to meet somebody who is in a position of power who actually understands the industry he's serving. And I think uh, because uh, Minister Chen uh, was an electronic engineer, he used to read E.E. Times when he was um, in academics, and uh, studying. He actually knew of us but um, that's not enough to get you an interview obviously but I think um, it did help in getting some empathy uh, for what we were doing. So when when I finally got to meet him and you'll read online you know sort of the journey that I took to get there and meet him uh, what really fascinated me was how he put in or, so I'm not sure whether it was his incentive, but I definitely must have had, had a large play in this, where he um, there's a program to incentivize professors to commercialize their research. And uh, because uh, Taiwan has already got a very strong hardware platform, Minister Chen had this vision, or has this vision, where he wants to sort of uh, push Taiwan to this new wave and uh, this new wave is around ai enabled services and ai sips, you know, obviously needs the hardware platform so it's actually quite quite a useful way of taiwan sort of uh, moving uh from that sort of brand of being the world's manufacturing hub to being what you know, minister chen wants to see as the ai services hub so the uh, research commercialization programs uh, that he's got, I think, are are really making some impact. I mean, I've seen companies there uh, from that program, in uh, sort of early companies, and they all already seem to be raising money. They already sp- seem to be getting customers, and uh, I think you know, it's quite a a good thing to see the outcomes. As I, as I say in my piece, it's very important to understand how um, policy influences, outcomes, and I think yeah, this has definitely been an outcome that uh, has been effective so far. So I would say, you yeah, Minister Chen is really passionate about uh, the industry. Uh, he understands the industry, so he, he knows what yeah, it takes, and that's why I
0: think that was one of my sort of really good interviews for this year. Anne-Francoise Pellet is another editor who's worked both sides of the fence. She worked with us for a while, then spent some time with Google France, and we're pleased to have her back. Lately, she's been concentrating on sensor technology. Here she is, reporting from Paris.
6: The Internet of Things is changing the way we interact with the world around us. Everyone and everything is connected, and soon will be interconnected. MEMS devices and sensors assume an essential job in collecting, monitoring, and analyzing data, often in real time. In October, I met Peter Atwell, CTO of TDK InvenSense, We talked about a future in which IoT technologies become invisible. I wondered if that would ever be possible. My interview with Peter, however, literally opened my eyes. For the first time, I felt as though I really understood what sensors are for and what sensing is all about. I can now summarize what I learned from Peter in three words. Sensing, sense, and sensibility. First, sensing. Sensors help devices and robots see, hear, feel, and intuitively understand the surroundings. For Peter, sensors are going to be the driver for change. In the future, it will not just be us carrying smartphones in our pockets, wearing smartwatches. We will be moving seamlessly from the digital to the physical world. And that's only possible with sensors. Second, sense. If you want to build something, build it well and build it with purpose said Peter. Question after question, Peter expressed his ambition to make technology accessible to the masses, not something esoteric just for the earlier adopters. No. Technologies for everyone. The smartphone is a good example of mass adoption, and somewhere in 20 to 40 years, Pillar believes that we will all be wearing a continuous diagnostic monitoring system because medtech will enter the mass market. Sensibility is the third one throughout the interview I heard Peter considering ultrasound as the next step toward actuation and piezoelectric technology gaining momentum I heard Peter talking about his eight year old son with admiration he was amazed how fast his son was speaking of voice technology that convinced him that one day technology would become so natural that it would disappear into the background. Peter envisions the future of VR in the hands of non-gamers. Sure, gamers remain significantly large users of VR today. But what about us, Peter, and Peter's dad? Dreaming about a wider adoption of VR, Peter once digitized himself skiing and put his dad skiing with him and his grandson in VR. Three generations were virtually skiing together. Just close your eyes and think about it. Peter's dad never thought he would ever go skiing with his grandson. The virtual world had entered the real world and made the impossible possible. Peter proved to me that he has the sensibility and instinct to transform technology into a human experience
7: how are we going to get to content creation for VR? Yeah, That's literally to me where, uh-huh. where we're stuck right now. It's sort of like in the days of black and white TV. Mm-hmm. You can buy a headset, we don't know what to watch. And if you go to the early TV shows, it was Vaudeville because mm-hmm. that was entertainment, right? Yeah. So we put this, you know, kids and people and stuff mm-hmm. on stage on the TV and and it took us 70 years to come up with Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. right? And so the question is, how do we accelerate that into where VR becomes this, this platform to consume and experience things we couldn't do before. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be travel. I think it's going to be shopping. I think it's going to be. Um, but it's, it's, it's also where I've succeeded, it's been personal content. I've been able to, to digitize myself skiing and mm-hmm. put my dad skiing with me and his grandson in VR. Wow. And he took, took the headset off. He literally looks at me and goes, wow, I never thought I'd get to go skiing with my grandson. Oh, wow. Wow. That was a cool picture movie you showed me. No, I went skiing with my grandson. That was how he really felt it. And so, then you see the catalyst. So, so to me, yeah, that's, that's, that's where um, of those startup uh, companies we looked at today in the showcase, that's the one I get. I just can't wait. I can't wait to do that. And that's yeah. why I do this stuff. There's things I just want other people to invent so that I can, I can go play with it. So.
0: Junko Yoshida is international editor for EE e. Times. Here she is talking with one of her go to interviews, Phil Koopman.
8: After billions of dollars had been already poured into autonomous vehicle tech, 2019 saw car makers scaling back their initial launch plans for cars, As the industry's view on the future of AVs ping-ponged all over the optimism meter, I wondered, what roadblocks does the AV industry still need to clear? Let's remember the promise of autonomous driving has turned investors, automakers, tech suppliers, and the media into a willing chorus, singing that AVs are just around the corner. We were all in harmony, so who do we trust if we want to find out why we were all a little off-key now? Certainly not the corporations who kept telling us with little evidence hey, it's very cool. Autonomous vehicles are safe. I decided that it was time to seek an independent voice. I needed an expert who has studied safety, who knows technologies, who is not afraid to share his viewpoint. For us, the answer was Phil Koopman, co-founder of Edge Case Research and professor at Carnegie Mellon. My best interview came in September. We talked about the fundamental differences between ADAS and AV. As a tech reporter, somehow I had developed this notion, which is often shared by tech companies, that ADAS and AV exist on the same single migration path. I thought that if you nail ADAS, you'd eventually nail AV. To that fallacy, Phil said.
9: So on a technical basis, the difference is in ADAS, you Typically tuned for very few false alarms because if you stop a car on a highway in front of a truck that's a bad outcome (laughs) and and you're willing to take you're willing to accept the fact that sometimes you miss times you should activate and you don't and the reason is because it's the driver's fault the driver shouldn't have been almost hitting something anyway and if nine times out of ten you can prevent a death you just save nine lives right okay now and so, so ADAS doesn't have to be perfect because the driver's supposed to be in charge and you're supposed to kick in when the driver makes a mistake. Right. Now, this is a classical ADAS. We're not talking lane keeping. We're talking right. uh, stability control, emergency braking, anti-lock braking, yeah. things like this. You switch over to, to complete self-driving, fully right. autonomous. And if you... So if you were to use that same ADAS system, and nine times out of 10 it stops, and you your autonomous people, and this is a bad idea, say, all right, we're not worried about hitting things because we have A, B, and that prevents us from ever hitting anything, <laughs> then one time out of 10 it's going to hit, and I made up that number, it's just yeah, an example, yeah, just, yeah. you know, one time out of 10 it's going to hit, and you haven't saved nine lives, you've killed one person, okay, and so this is why that's a bad idea. Yeah. And again, I made up the numbers just to prove the point. Right. But, but the point is that the ADAS systems are not supposed to be perfect. They're not advertised as perfect. Right. And they do that for a reason, yeah. because when you have a human driver in charge, it's a different situation than a fully self-driving car. All and right. so the technology has to change, the tuning has to change, okay. the sensors have to change. You right. could still use AEB, yeah. but that had better be the backup. It can't
4: be it the can primary be reason.
8: Boom, there it was. Phil was explaining the huge shift in responsibility that's about to happen when carmakers start selling vehicles that supposedly drive themselves. Phil has never said autonomous vehicles are impossible. His focus is not prophecy. It comes down to insisting that AV designers think through every conceivable consequence so that they are prepared to argue the safety case. Phil played a key role in developing the draft of UL 4600. That's the safety standard for autonomous products. As he emphasized the danger of unintended and unforeseen consequences, his hashtag became his signature. Hashtag. Did you think of that?
0: As for me, you heard my favorite interview earlier this very podcast. The one with Maude Vinay from CEA Letty. Like all of my colleagues, I love it when I get to talk to someone who knows their subject thoroughly. Now, here's the thing for journalists like me who cover technology. Oddly enough, engineers are just like regular people. Some of them are really good at explaining things, and some of them aren't. When a journalist finds someone who knows their stuff and can explain it in plain English, well, that person is as good as gold. Actually, I had the great good fortune in 2019 to speak to a lot of engineers who are great explainers. Maud Vinay is only one of them, but she just happened to help me understand something I previously just wasn't getting. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending December 20th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer katie huss the transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com you can usually find a new episode every friday on our website or on blueberry itunes spotify or stitcher the next time you hear from us though we'll be live at the consumer electronics show in las vegas the first week in january in the meantime the staff of ee times wishes you a very happy holidays i'm brian santo